0: This is Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, the Disrupt Meister. Welcome to This Week in Bitcoin. Today is November the 1st. Oh, yeah, new month, 2019. How was your Halloween, everyone? Strong hand, long-term thinking. Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. Unconfiscatable, in motion. Personal responsibility is the new counterculture All right, everyone, you know I'm offended by selling. Hello, all my elite friends. It is time for This Week in Bitcoin. We have a new guest on. It is David Nage of ARCA. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, I saw your awesome interview of Turd Meester. You are, everyone, he's linked to below. You can check out his Twitter. You can check out ARCA. All the the pertinent stuff is linked to below. You're gonna wanna know more about this, dude. Because you've got got an interesting story. You are a former family office investor, okay? So I've heard about the family offices before. They deal with like ultra wealthy people. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. And I haven't heard about too many of those family office people getting into Bitcoin here. Mm -hmm. So tell us about what is a family office, first of all, and how did you find your way into Bitcoin?
1: So a family office is an entity that was created to effectively help a wealthy family manage their assets. It stems back all the way from the House of Rothschild back uh, hundreds of years ago. And what we started to see in the United States, one of the first families to have a family office was the Rockefellers. So John D. Rockefeller, by 1904, had amassed almost a billion dollars of net worth. And some of the people that were working in Standard Oil were effectively managing that money for him. And you start to see some issues like blackmail. You know, they knew how much money the Rockefellers had, and they knew they can start to pull things, you know, with them. And so this this entity came about that would be away from the corporation that the wealthy family owned that would oversee their investments and oversee a lot of their lifestyle uh, uh, choices. And so over the last 100 years, we've seen them evolve. We saw them kind of go away for a long time because big institutions like Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank We're taking care of a lot of those issues for them. But what we started to see is that families wanted to have more flexibility. They wanted to be able to get into more alternative investments. We started to see them getting into VC and into a lot of direct investments over the last decade. And my trip into Bitcoin came about in 2015 when one of the family members that I was working for actually had invested in one of the first Bitcoin funds and a lot of people have this beautiful story about reading Satoshi's you know, white paper, seeing that there was going to be this evolution of distributed, and decentralized systems that was gonna proliferate us from the dearths of centralization. And me, it was more about, oh my God, this was the same time around Dread you know, you know, Prior Roberts and some of the stuff that was happening on Silk Road. For me as an investor, my first job was protecting the family and making sure that there was nothing that was gonna get out in the news about them. They want to be kept private, and so the idea is that you never want to be on the Wall Street Journal or the Times or any kind of TV shows. And so for me, it was more a defense mechanism. I needed to learn everything at that point in time about Bitcoin. And so I spent about six months of my life deeply immersed into Bitcoin, talking to people that were PhDs of distributed systems that were, you know, MIT and some of the other institutions here in the United States. And then I started teaching myself how to code. Now, this is not necessary, um, but I started reading a lot of the, the mechanisms that were in place, and I didn't feel comfortable understanding them from the kind of knowledge base that I had as an investor and someone that really didn't spend enough time in computer science when I went to college. And so I effectively started teaching myself how to code at the same time learning about Bitcoin, and I had the realization that the investments that we're making as family offices into centralized companies, companies that are using AWS and other infrastructure are liable. And we've seen this play out time and time again, where the centralization, you know, basically as George Gilder says in his book, if you tell all the thieves where the money is, they're going to go there. And the same way as with data, data is a new form of money these days. If you tell all the thieves where the data is, they're going to go there. And so the, the promise of distributed and decentralized systems, you know, to me initially was like, my goodness, this is a potential way to stave off the massive liability that we're investing in, in terms of these centralized systems. And so that really led me down the path further and further. And then realizing obviously that with Bitcoin, with the censorship resistance, the ability to store one's assets digitally and not have a authoritarian government be able to seize them. That really kind of also gleaned a lot of information to me because what we started seeing, you know, issues in Venezuela, we started to see hyperinflation over the last two to three years in certain in certain countries. This became a a thing to me that really said, you know what, when people learn about this, that it could be absolutely massive, and that's obviously what we're all in the space. You know, we think, we think that it could be a replacement for gold, and we think that there's so much possibility when there's global macro issues that people can go into this. And so, you know, I was very early into it. Um, a lot of my peers in the family office world were very I guess I can say, uh, at odds with me. Um, they had heard about Jamie Dimon calling it a scam. They read a lot of the negative headline risks. And you know the thing about Bitcoin that's you know, both beautiful and kind of annoying is that it gets majority of the lion's share of press. And most of that press always starts with the same kind of paragraph. Well, in 2017 in Q4, you know, Bitcoin hit 21,000 and then it died down to 3,000. So obviously it's, you know, just a big Ponzi scheme. And so there's always that kind of, you know, clickbait. But those that actually started to really kind of understand the fundamentals, and there are fundamentals of Bitcoin, um, those that really started to understand that, you know, started to change the way. But yeah, you know, in terms of understanding how family offices perceive Bitcoin, and other digital assets. I'm happy to kind of glean into that as well too, if you want.
0: Yeah, I actually, I want to get into what your predictions are on real uh, family uh, offices pile into Bitcoin and into the space. But so, okay, you got interested in it. You were working for the family office. How did you get into ARCA? How did you, and what is ARCA?
1: Right. So over the time, over the last three years, I started really focusing much more on distributed and decentralized systems. I try not to necessarily call them blockchains because I think that is a a meme and a kind of a pigeonhole that really doesn't do them a lot of services. And so I started looking at that more as a theme and the last family office I was at, unfortunately, you know, it was a situation where there was some interest, but case in point, we were gonna build a supply and logistics company where we had two parts of that. We had a point of sales business and we had an RFID technology, a label company. And I wanted to build it on a public chain. Um, I would have liked to obviously do it on Bitcoin, but it not, that's not necessarily what it's built for. Um, and unfortunately, you know, they went to use a private chain. Now, talking to them about the differences between private chains and public chains, you know, a private chain, in my opinion, is no better than a SQL, you know, SQL kind of database. Um, it, it really, you know, there's there was a lack of kind of congruency on that, and so. What happened is I started to you know put on these conferences. They were called FO256. I put on two of them so far. First one had about 120 family offices come. The second one we did in April of this year had about 150 family offices come. And the first one, after the first one, I left so energized that there really was interest amongst my peers now um, that I decided to say you know that it was my time to spend 100% on that, on Bitcoin and other digital assets. And so, Around uh, October of 2018, I opted to leave. Um, I spent about four months of my life meeting lots of different fund managers and projects in the space. Um, after meeting about 60 different funds, I became really concerned uh, by the lack of what I would consider fiduciary responsibility and management. Um, a lot of them were investing heavily in Bitcoin, which is great, but you know when you're trying to diversify an investor's risk, you need to potentially you know think about things aside from just one asset. Yes, I'm, as people know, if they listen to my podcast, I'm a massive Bitcoin believer. Um, but at the same time, I'm also an investor and I believe in diversifying one's risk um, because God help us, you know, if Bitcoin, you know, gets taken down somehow, you know, it's good to have a few eggs in a basket, you know, to protect your downside risk. And so I actually started writing a lot on Medium. Um, I started the podcast called Base Layer. And the first article that I wrote that really seemed to resonate with people is that that 90% of the crypto funds were going to fail. And I stated that those funds were going to fail because they didn't necessarily adhere to fiduciary responsibilities. Their sizing of positions was wrong. Um, Their risk management was non-existent. Their governance was non-existent. Um, And so all of that writing and the, the podcast kind of led me to the folks at ARCA. ARCA is a digital asset management firm. Um, we have about three different current strategies in place right now. If people are familiar with some of the traditional finance uh, kind of mechanisms like BlackRock, BlackRock is a big holding company. And under BlackRock, you have all these different strategies. And my opinion is that there's, you know, it's good to have different strategies in this space right now. You know, obviously we believe heavily in Bitcoin, as I said before, but it is good to look at some of the other spaces. It gives you information that you would not otherwise have. And so... You know, as it goes, we have a liquid fund uh, that is run by a, uh, a fellow who used to be uh, a trader on Wall Street for about 15 years. He has traded everything from equities to casino bonds. He's very thoughtful about the space. He started a, a fintech company about five years ago, and his uh, developers were mining Bitcoin, and that was, led him to his kind of Bitcoin moment. Our CEO and co-founder is the C is the co-founder of a big financial company called Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree is a publicly traded company. Uh, it has about 60 billion in assets under management. Uh, he built it with his brother back in 2000 and uh, that has been a fantastic success. And so his Bitcoin moment came a few years ago too. He left that company, he started another uh, startup uh, focusing around cannabis, uh, never touched the plants, but he was building, um, I have to say that, um, he was effectively, um, Helping uh, the infrastructure of of build of of the plants and the buildings uh, with the grows and uh, JP Morgan, uh, or his bank at that time uh, basically said you're working in cannabis we're gonna shut down the account um, and so this is a situation whereas he started getting payments in Bitcoin and you know that was his aha moment that this is not something that can be really shut down um, and I, as I said you know it's censorship resistant. And so they founded the company about a year and a half ago. We have our asset, we have our fund, which is invested, you know, in Bitcoin and, and some other diff, uh, digital assets, which I you know, can't necessarily talk about. Um, but then we also have an opportunistic fund, which does uh, things in more venture capital. And then we have financial products that we build on blockchains. Um, and so there's a few different things that we're doing right now. It gives a diversified flavor to the, to the entire space.
0: Okay. Now, I'm a guy who's not big in the diversification when it comes to uh, cryptocurrency. That's why I'm the Bitcoin meister. I, I think I, I do like that you said 90% of the funds will fail. And you're just saying your fund is of an excellent level and it will not fail. And uh, I, I think, of course, most of the funds out there, they're diversifying for the sake of diversification into all sorts of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a lot of nonsense out there and so I won't disagree
1: with you on that I won't disagree with uh, you uh, on that
0: by the way you at the beginning of the show you brought up the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers like in one sentence pound that like button for that all the conspiracy theorists were going crazy when you said that oh they're going wild right now because you said those two words <laughs> you on YouTube uh, I, I know you've got an awesome podcast linked to below of course everybody check it out uh, but when you bring up Rothschilds and, and Rockefellers, it just, uh, it drives the, uh, it drives the doomers crazy. Uh, but, but going back to the, uh, you cannot, you said you can't mention the altcoins you have interest in, or can you allude to any and reasons why? Because there definitely is a top tier out there. There's definitely mm-hmm. a top tier out there. And then there's the Jokers and the ICOs right. and this. I mean, can, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I would say the way that we can frame that is basically that we see there's a taxonomy in the space right now. There are different sectors in the space right now. Um, There's an emphasis on infrastructure. And one of the things that we also feel pretty strongly about is that the layer of adoption or the level of adoption that will come will also come from gaming. Um, We see that as a big place. And talking about gaming in in terms of adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets. You know, it's going to be interesting in 2020 here in the United States that the viewership of eSports is going to dwarf about three professional leagues, including the NHL, next year alone. And so there is a massive, I think there is somewhere in the range of about a billion people in the world who play games on a daily basis. You know, as someone who's a father, I see my kids go on our phones, go on their iPads, and play these games. And in those games, you have in game currencies. And so there is a whole generation being primed for mobile digital currencies. And you know, it takes it's really upon us right now, and I spend my time educating kids about this too, where we need to educate our kids about Bitcoin. You know, if it's not in their vocabulary by a certain point in time, it is a disservice uh, because that will be their future the future societies will rely on these types of censorship resistant, you know, type of digital assets. And so, you know, for us, you know, that is an that is a really big focus area. And also as many people say, you know, the infrastructure, you know, getting faster. You know, we always talk about, you know, being more performant, um, you know, the people outside of digital assets in the crypto box always talk about transactions per second. So can we get to be more performant? Can we also, Look at things like NFTs. Um, some people are really taking a hard look at that, and I think there's a lot of interest, especially from family offices. You know, and talking to them, a lot of them investing art. A lot of them invest in more illiquid assets, like real estate, and the the promise of being able to have liquidity in those assets, you know, far exceeds what they would really, you know, they know about right now. So for people that don't know, a lot of family offices who invest in these things, like art or buildings you know, there comes a point in time where they might need to get some liquidity. You know, yeah, they might have hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, but sometimes you need liquidity to do things. Um, And so when you have an asset that is fairly illiquid, you have to go to a secondary broker. Um, And that secondary broker basically just says, okay, you know, give it to me. You know, I know you're going to come to me and I'm the only shop in town and they're going to take advantage and they're going to, you know, basically take them for, you know, a pretty good amount of money. Um, they'll be able to find a buyer on the other side But again, you know, they're gonna lose some of that capital to that 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 secondary broker and so the the possibility of having Open markets without having this intermediary this rent seeker in the middle is something that family offices you know when they start learning about it more and they are starting to uh, Could be very interested in about and so again, there are different areas aside from Bitcoin in my opinion and you know, I've have spoken about this publicly. Is that Bitcoin is the store of value. It is a programmable money. It is something that will transform our lives. That gold, you know, in terms of what I talked about, my kids, you know, my kids and the future generations will not have a relationship to this legacy hard asset that you know our grandparents always used when the, you know, the proverbial poop hit the fan. You know, our kids will not know that. They will know about these in-game currencies. They will know about things that are digital and and on mobile devices. And so it's my opinion that, you know, Bitcoin serves that. And that is a massive, massive, massive market to serve. But in my opinion, you know, Bitcoin should do what it's good at. And I don't think that, you know, the Bitcoin community, and I might be wrong, and I'm happy to hear from them, but I don't think they want to get into these things like, you know, smart contracts. And I don't think they want to get into, you know, creating the Web 3.0. But I think, you know, it's a disservice to really not look at the technology and look at distributed and decentralized systems as a technology and say, you know what, we can fix things that are wrong in Web 1 and 2. There's a lot wrong in Web 1 and 2. Yes, we're using Zoom right now, and Zoom is probably relying on AWS. And you know what, you know, I used, you know, Google Maps in San Francisco last night when I was going to a thing for San Francisco Blockchain Week. And Google now knows that I'm in San Francisco and they probably know where I went and they're probably selling that to somebody else. Anytime that you use some of these services, you basically are the product. And I think that there's going to be a massive emphasis on privacy going forward. We're seeing that overseas with GDPR. You know, that passed a few years ago and it's been in effect. We saw 40 attorney generals here in the United States start probing Google about their data usage and privacy issues. I think privacy is going to be a massive, massive emphasis for society going forward, that we're going to want to hold our digital cells, that we want to be able to own our digital cells, that if someone wants to know about what we're doing, they should incentivize us. And so these are some of the themes I think that will start to play out. Um, But again, Bitcoin, in my opinion, has to be amazing and exceptional, and it is already at what it does. And there is a world outside of that that can exist. I think we started to see, you know, in '17, 07, and '18, that a lot of people had this whimsical kind of, you know, fairy tale dream about some of these things, like you know, dentists and all these other coins and all this other stuff. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, there's a world where you can have practical pragmatism, where there's actual real use cases for some of these, you know, different applications. Um, and so yeah, I think that kind of falls into what we think about the world.
0: All right. Very, very interesting stuff there. And I want to go back to your origin story again. You were at the family office mm-hmm. and your family office peers or other family offices back in 2015, they weren't into Bitcoin. That, it wasn't their thing. But right. has there, there started to be a flow of family uh, office money into the space is it going to get larger? I mean, what is the potential here? These these are I- incredibly wealthy uh, funds. So right. uh, w- what do you see? What do you see This as a timeline?
1: You know, I, I think it's been a disservice that there's been this meme. The institutions are coming. The institutions are coming. Um, it was a little too early to say that. Um, there are family offices who have been investing in this for the last five years. Um, that coincide with some of the institutions that have been building it like Fidelity. Fidelity has spent the last five years investigating Bitcoin and we saw them launch their qualified custodian platform uh, this year focusing on Bitcoin. And so the institutions have been focusing on this for a while and the family offices, yes, there has been an appetite, but I think what we're starting to see right now is you know it was the scam, then it was the all-time highs of you know 17 and then it capitulated When it was interesting, when I threw my 1st FO F0256 in September of 18, there was actually interest. People were saying, okay, it's been, you know, kind of in the sixes, it seems to be stabilizing. There was a narrative that the volatility over the last nine years has actually come down comparable to the equity markets and people were really interested. And then we saw what happened, you know, with going down to the threes. That moment when it went down to the threes, was pivotal because a lot of family offices kind of washed their hands of it and they said okay maybe it's just too volatile right now and it's not really for us and that is also a factor of them not understanding the as i said the fundamentals of what bitcoin is you know there is a lack of understanding you know to this day in my opinion you know there is what i consider bitcoin having an identity crisis to the people who know bitcoin and you know very deeply they know it as a store of value. They know it as a censorship-resistant hard money. They know about it as the future. But a lot of people who are reading the news, you know, read about it as a speculative asset. You know, there's also the possibility that Bitcoin could be a hedge to global macro you know, calamity, which we're starting to see happen all across the board. And so for family offices, <clears throat> it's been this moment of they don't have clarity about what Bitcoin is what kind of a service it functions in their portfolio, do they put it into their venture bucket? And we've seen that a lot of family offices over the last year or two have been struggling with, do I put it into venture? And do I have the same type of risk and return profile as a venture investment? And obviously, you know, what we've seen is that that's not correct. That Bitcoin has a very different risk and return profile versus their traditional venture investments. And so for them, it's where do I put it? And I'm gonna, there's a story I'll tell uh, anecdotally, so I spoke to a big family office about three or four months ago, and their, the patriarch of the family uh, spoke to their uh, chief investment officer, who called me, and he said, you know, we want to get into Bitcoin because of this idea of Bitcoin as schmuck insurance. Um, there's been this narrative over the last few years, Paul Palapaltea from uh, Social Capital kind of penned this about 2013 or so that Bitcoin is schmuck insurance. If the world falls to hell in a handbag, you know, it's good to have Bitcoin because it is something that's completely uncorrelated to all of the mess that's being created. And so they called me and they said, okay, well, how do we do this? And so that should signal to people, how do I, you know, a family office is calling me and asking me how to get involved in Bitcoin. So the, the, the very idea right now that there isn't a clear path, people still don't know how to get involved in it, I think tells me and tells just tell other people that it's still really early, and so I walked them through, you know, basically based on how much capital they want to put into Bitcoin. Um, if it was a certain threshold, I said, you know, it's probably best to just do it yourself. Um, go to Coinbase or go to one of the exchanges out there that is, you know, more regulated and you know is a higher, you know, ilk. Um, get a treasurer or a ledger and you know, you know, write your twenty-four seed and. That's it. You're done. Um, if you want to go higher, um, you know, it, it starts to get a little uncomfortable for the family office professional. You know, having you know effectively a USB stick, uh, which has you know a lot of money on it potentially, could be very uncomfortable. And I think you know it was shared that this is a very uncomfortable kind of feature um, for other people. Obviously, this idea of not your not your keys, not your Bitcoin, I get. Um, but you have to, you know, flip it to the other side. If you're responsible for someone else's money, um, it could be very uncomfortable having that, you know, in that fashion, um, if it's not your own. And so we talked about, you know, some of the platforms out there, like the Fidelities, like the Gemini's, like the Anchorage's of the world. Um, and so it was a process, you know, it really, it depends on how much money they want to put into the system. Um, A lot of them, I think I've seen a lot of the CIOs of family offices, the chief investment officers, have been investing personally uh, in their own personal accounts into this. So they've started their own Coinbase account. They've put in whatever kind of money they want to put into this just to get a feel for it. Um, And I think that's really important. It's the feel. How does this feel? What does it do? How do I move funds around And so, you know, for people that are trying to understand why family offices might not be jumping into this, you know, with both feet, it's because they're dipping their toes. They're trying to get a sense of this. They're trying to see how it feels. They're trying to see, you know, again, do I really want to have potentially a lot of my client's money on a USB stick where I have to try to hide it in a safe and write a 24 C character phrase. And if I maybe miss one of those characters or it smudges, You know, from the pen that I use, I might not be able to, you know, kind of recoup that, those assets. I know it sounds hard for a lot of people who are, you know, obviously, you know, dead set Bitcoiners, which I get. But again, we have to take, you know, kind of, we have to put ourselves in their shoes. It's not, you know, our capital. It's not your capital that you're putting to work. It's somebody else's. And if you mess it up and you lose those, you lose, you know, the seed or you can't recover, you know, the keys, You're basically putting yourself at risk of losing your job.
0: Um, You've you've given a real life perspective on the controlling your private keys aspect of Bitcoin there. Um, Traditional investors, they're going to freak out thinking about $3 million worth of wealth on a stick. It's just, (laughs) I guess it's hard for them to get used to that. It's, uh, Especially
1: if it's not their own.
0: Yes. Yeah. So that is why we are seeing more and more Bitcoin controlled by custodians, by, by third parties. People are not going the Trace Mayer way, the Adam Meister way, and controlling their own private key. It's a, a greater share of Bitcoin is now ending up at these type of uh, Businesses and this ben this benefits. I mean, Arca, you invest for other people. You you're controlling uh, people's uh, uh, people's wealth. I mean, they very well. I mean, your clients could just go out there and buy Bitcoin and put it in the trésor easily if they wanted to. But like, right. so what type of people come to Arca then? I mean, are they just totally from the traditional mindset, the traditional finance mindset?
1: It's people who understand that there's something happening here, but understand that to be in this world, it's 24, seven, 365, you know, you cannot just kind of haphazardly go into Bitcoin and some of these other digital assets and just call it a day. You know, we saw over the last few weeks alone, especially with regulation, we saw, you know, Telegram have their emergency uh, SEC filing, you know, basically saying, stop everything. We, we saw, You know, the CFTC opine basically saying that Ethereum is not a security. We saw some other things happen recently, you know, basically stipulating that regulation is, is definitely becoming an issue. And for family offices, I wanna make a very specific picture here. They are investing in real estate. They are investing in hedge funds. They are investing in equities. They are investing in things like royalty streams from music. Um, there are a full layer of things that they are investing in across the spectrum. And so with Bitcoin and other digital assets, you and I both know that it really is something that you need to dedicate a lot of time to. You can't just kind of set it and forget it, per se. You need to know what's happening in the market. You need to know what's happening in the news. You need to know what's happening with the regulation. And for a lot of the people that are talking to us, say, yeah, you know what? We want to have exposure to this. We want to have exposure to Bitcoin and other digital assets. But we we just don't have what we call bandwidth. This is a popular phrase in family offices called bandwidth. Bandwidth basically means I don't have time. Um, I don't have time to understand you know the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin. I don't have time to understand you know some of the regulatory things that are happening within Bitcoin um, but I know that I want exposure to it and I want people that I can trust that have you know basically invested and have run and have experience with asset management of other people's capital. And so that is why people talk to us um, because we are very deep believers in this space. Um, But at the same time, we're also very deep believers that, you know, when someone gives us capital to invest that it is a huge, huge responsibility. And so, you know, having that understanding and having that really be as a, a, as a guiding principle, I think is a reason why people come to us. I agree with you. You know, I I I completely understand the not your coins, you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, you know, terminology and narrative. I get it. Um, but again, you know, it is incredibly hard for people who are constantly being judged every single day about their performance. And if they are getting involved in something that is considered a highly risky asset, such as Bitcoin, and you know, even if it performs well, but if they have some sort of an issue getting those assets, you know, it is something that a lot of them feel very uncomfortable with right now. And so again, it is not their own assets. It's somebody else's money that you're basically investing on behalf of. And so it is a really different trajectory for a lot of people.
0: Uh, on the bandwidth uh, issue, I, I would differentiate between Bitcoin and the rest of them. I think Bitcoin, you can treat it as a savings account and just forget about it. All the others though, (laughs) there is a lot of drama involved. There are all sorts of changes. There are times that you're gonna have to dump uh, and you're gonna have to get rid of some of these things. And you know- I'm
1: gonna kick back for a second. I'm gonna kick back for a second. So when we saw Bitcoin basically up 30% in the last week, you know, everyone's like, well, how the heck did that happen? You know, when we've seen Bitcoin, you know, have weekends where it's gone down 10% all of a sudden, why did that happen? Again, you know, it's something, yes, I agree with you. It's kind of, you know, something that you think about long term. It is something as a store of value, but it is volatile. Um, Obviously, as I said, the volatility has come down over the last nine to 10 years. And I know that we're actually celebrating the the white paper's uh, anniversary today as we speak. Um, But... It, you know the volatility does still exist. And again, if you are an investor on, with somebody else's capital at risk and one of your assets goes down by 20% in the matter of three hours, you have to basically explain to them why that happened. And if you don't know why that happened, because you don't have time to understand why that happened, you're not in the telegram chats, you're not talking to the OTCs, You're not, you know, involved in the ecosystem. If you don't know why that happened and you're just trying to, you know, basically read a Bloomberg article or Forbes article to try to come up to speed, you're really not doing your job.
0: You know, you, you put it in a, you put it in a better perspective there. I'm coming from the, you know, sovereign individual perspective. I'm, I manage for me. It's, you know, personal responsibility. I manage everything that's mine. And I, but again, you're coming from the perspective of there are all these people they have other people manage their stuff, and it's got to be managed perfectly. And they don't have the time to worry about that stuff. But I, I see you, you've, you've got a point. You, you, you've definitely got a point there. I, I live in a world where you know, I can could control all my assets and everything. But some people, they're, they're used to the traditional finance where they're used to other people managing their stuff. And it's just that's the way it is. And it is, it is a full-time job. There, There
1: is similarities between, you know, the family office world and, you know, I say air quotes our world. We're all very concerned about OPSEC, about, you know, you know, we're very, you know, you know, a lot of us are very careful about that. We, You know, anyone who's had, you know, their phone simjacked or anyone that has lost, you know, any kind of bitcoins from a, you know, an exchange hack, anything that's happened... Family offices are also incredibly cognizant and obviously very concerned about oper- operational security. Um, they, you know, they have a significant amount of wealth, and again, this is why they have that layer of privacy. They don't want to be in the news. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be able to search on Google and just find that person and know where they work or where they live. Um, That's why there's layers and layers of kind of staff there at a family office to kind of keep away from the family itself. And so, you know, I think there are similarities between, you know, the Bitcoin world and the family office world. Um, But again, you know, the people that are actually pulling the strings that are making those investments that are, you know, going and buying Bitcoin are, again, as you said, if we said a few times, they're not buying it for themselves and they're buying it for somebody else. And so with that becomes a higher threshold of responsibility that just a lot of people don't understand.
0: Yeah, very good point. Pound that like button, everyone. We're getting a really unique perspective here. I like it a lot. Well, you alluded to uh, the, the, the people that manage other people's funds. They had to answer uh, this past weekend, why did it go up by so much? And you know, there were theories about China. Uh, there are theories about Libra. And I'm going to ask you about Libra real quick. What, what are your thoughts on Libra? Will it succeed, and will it be good for the space?
1: I have no idea if it will succeed. Um, I think what we've seen is that there's been higher scrutiny because of, you know, obviously Facebook being involved, and here in the U.S. government, you know, there are there are powers that be that are very unhappy with Facebook and about some of the things that they've been involved with in terms of data and privacy. Um, I think at the end of the day, what we've seen is that the ecosystem—if you are moving assets. If you are trading Bitcoin, you know, most of the trading involves using Tether to go in and out of different exchanges. They use a stable coin. I personally believe that a stable coin is good for the ecosystem because it's a unit of exchange. You know, I, as I said before, Bitcoin, in my opinion, is a store of value. I think spending your Bitcoin on a coffee is ridiculous. I don't understand why people would want to actually do that. Um, It's like literally taking a gold bar and chipping it and giving it to Starbucks. I I don't understand why you would want to necessarily do that. Um, And so the idea of having a digital asset that has a lot of the earmarks of distributed and decentralized systems, that has the features, I understand why the idea of a stable coin actually presents itself to the market you know, it would be interesting to be able to see that, you know, whether it's Libra, or there are other ones out there, there's ones that are backed by other uh, digital assets, like Ethereum, Um, you know, there is DAI, there is some others out there. Um, I think it's interesting in in, you know, to see this evolve. I think this market needs to have a stable coin succeed. I think it also, you know, let's, you know, we've said it all before, Facebook has amazing reach as a distribution channel. There are over two billion daily active users on that platform. And I think a lot of people got really stuck on Libra, um, but a lot of people just have not spent a lot of time on Calibra, which is the wallet. Um, I think if you are able to effectively give two billion people a cryptographically powered digital wallet, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, and again, you know, the way that we've talked about it at ARCA and the way that I believe about it is that, you know, the whole Libra, Calibra thing is a massive distribution opportunity for us all. Um, and so I think that is, you know, that's really the way I think about it in terms of, you know, the whole stablecoin Libra kind of discussion.
0: All right. Let's uh, let's move to a topic that's uh, based on the name of your show, actually. Uh, Base Layer, right? That's the name of it. Um now you you interviewed Ter and Groove um, sure the the and again it's 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 linked to below and at times you since you actually became a coder at one point there's a lot of technical aspects of Bitcoin yep. and do you feel that and we talk about the base layer and then we're going to build a second layer third layer fourth layer and, and we can get into all of that I find that stuff fascinating you're going to be all mm-hmm. these different layers built on top of it but when we get into these technical complexities. Do you think some of this is holding back uh, adoption and interest from uh, family offices, from larger institutions, because it's just it's an overload of information? They're like, I'm never going to be able to understand it. Do 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 you think there's a, a better way of communicating with traditional finance people?
1: Yeah. Again, this alludes, you know, this as I said, you know, Bitcoin at this moment in time is suffering a little bit of an identity crisis or as I wrote, I wrote a recent paper, it's a 24 page paper on kind of a primer uh, for family offices and institutional investors. I kind of said that Bitcoin and some other digital assets are going through what I call the tween phase. You know, they're not a toddler anymore. They're walking, they've been running um, and they're not a teenager yet. And so they're right in that middle phase right now where they're trying to figure out, you know, you know, for us that are in this space, we kind of know what Bitcoin is already to us. Um, But to others outside of this box, Is it a store of value? Is it a replacement for gold? Is it a global macro hedge? Is it a consensus network? Um, And obviously, you know, in terms of base layer, in terms of it being a consensus network, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think some of the legacy providers out there have done a very good job with, you know, marketing against it by, you know, focusing on the three transactions per second. You know, a lot of people don't understand that the three transactions per second and the 10 minute block times, you know, people consider that a bug you know, to people who actually understand Bitcoin, that's actually a feature. It's a security feature. Um, and so, you know, I think in terms of layer one and layer two, layer two, obviously, you know, with Lightning, you know, having the promise of faster transaction time to be able to create state channels, um, anything above those layers, I think is quite interesting. Um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the complexities of layer two or things like Taproot and Mass and some of the dips that are coming into place, Really, are dissuading family offices. I think you know the big dissuasion has been this marketing effort about focusing on the three transactions per second. You know, everyone says that it's slow, and that's really just not. You know, if you've if you've worked with Bitcoin, if you've had Bitcoin, if you you know move it around from a wallet to other things, you'll see that the the transactions per seconds are actually pretty damn good these days. Um, and so. You know, I think that's been probably the biggest disservice is that this three transactions per second means that it's slow and that you can't use it, can't use it for payments. I think there's been a fairly negative marketing effort on that. Um, and I don't think that any of the layer two solutions like lightning or any of the complexities of any of the other further layers in terms of scalability or in terms of governance really kind of dissuade people.
0: Okay. Uh, I want to look at a bigger bigger picture here. Uh, you, we were talking about governments before uh, regulations. Uh, economic collapse. Do you see, uh, we, we just had a rate cut in the United States. Yep. Um, where, where do you see this going? Uh, there's so many people that are just like gleefully awaiting some type of economic collapse. I, I'm not that type of person. I think we're about to enter an incredible golden age that does not, that you don't need to have everything fall apart to enter this beautiful golden age that we're about to enter, but uh, that I think we're going to but, and and I, I think Bitcoin cryptocurrency can be successful without it taking over the world, without Bitcoin becoming the world reserve cryptocurrency. I'm not a believer in hyper-Bitcoinization. What, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Do, do you see a, a huge economic collapse? Do you see a golden age ahead of us? Do you see world reserve currency for Bitcoin?
1: So I... I've been reading Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, which I recommend other people taking a look at. It's about how societies collapse, and it's a historical chronicle about how certain societies have collapsed, Um, and in there, he talks about this idea of uh, normalcy creep, or creepy normalcy, how, you know, over time, we start to become really adjusted to things that In the current time span, we would say, wait a second, that's wrong. You know, he talks about, you know, in Montana, that he would go there in the 1950s and would see snow-capped mountains. And, you know, you'd see that. And then he didn't go back for like 40 years. And all of a sudden, those snow-capped mountains were gone. Um, And everyone was like, oh, yeah, it's it's normal. Everyone who lived there and saw this every day was like, oh, it's normal. It's completely normal. And so there's this idea of normalcy creep um, that I think is affecting, you know, the market right now where... You know the Fed. You know, you know, cutting rates, uh, adjusting the repo market. We've seen them inject billion, you know, billions of dollars over the last few weeks, injecting into the capital markets, and then everyone's saying, "Oh, it's fine, it's normal." No, it's not normal. This is not normal operating procedure. Um, there is obviously something you know wrong um, from my perspective, and I think my my colleagues at Arca share it too. Is that when you see you know billions of dollars being injected by the US government by effectively printing, um, there is something wrong and we don't know what that is. We don't know if that's a bank, we don't know if that's something systemic, but it is not normal operating procedure. Um, We've just unfortunately gotten to this normalcy creep over the last decade with TARP uh, and the bailouts that it's become normal operating procedure to many people. That's not true. Um, and so I think that is something that we're definitely looking at. I'm very interested in this, uh, this, this data statistic that there's $3 trillion of, of debt by corporations that is on the verge of being downgraded to junk. Um, for those that don't know, institutional investors like pension endowments and you know, retiree plans typically are not allowed to hold, to hold um, debt or assets that are deemed junk. And so that could also cause massive problems. I think, you know, if you kind of widen the scope, Brexit, we've seen Boris Johnson have massive issues trying to get that passed. We're seeing them continuously, you know, kick the can down the road about that. Um, it's interesting. I had a great conversation with Raul Powell, who hopefully many of the Bitcoiners know because he's been doing great uh, work, you know, with Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, we were talking about Germany. You know, Germany is effectively uh, in a technical recession. and so. You know, we're seeing lots of spots. And we saw what happened with Chile just a week ago when I was with Dallas with Ter. With you know, you know, trains were being lit on fire because of some of the issues happening there. And hyperinflation throughout some of these countries is prevalent. Um, I just spoke to someone who works at Maker who is in Argentina where he's talking about the yearly inflation rates and how the peso is becoming less and less valuable there. Um, these are all things <clears throat> that we... In the Bitcoin you know, you know, camp and in digital asset world, we feel and we know should really translate to people saying, okay, it's time to adopt Bitcoin. This is something where I can put my assets in a place that's not going to be you know, effectively you know, hi- hyperinflated by a government that's just printing paper excessively. Um, but I think there's a massive education gap still. I think the people in Chile, the people in Venezuela have started obviously waking up to it but other countries that have experienced hyperinflation or that are experiencing political unrest, they still don't know that Bitcoin is a place where they can go and put their assets in safety. That will not be, you know, censorship resistant. That will not be, you know, as I said, uh, you know, affected by hyperinflation by, you know, the country's government printing excessive capital. Um, I think we're still early because a lot of people don't know of it as that particular tool in their box.
0: Well, I, I think you, you mentioned normalcy creep before. I think in a lot of these countries, it's just normal to have hyperinflation now. That's just the way it is. So why even look into into Bitcoin? Why even, yeah. even try to discover it? It's empathy too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I just don't, I, I, I mean, I, I want, I'm curious if you think um, that Bitcoin can become the world reserve Currency. I do not think it. I, 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 think governments will always come up with some digital, easy to use form of cash that will please the masses. And just the proactive people who understand censorship resistance, who under, who know about insurance, who, who, uh, you know, know about I- inflation. They're the ones that are going to disrupt. They're the ones that are going to get in the, bit, be, be, that are going to be in the Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin will be. For the average Joe on the street, I I, I don't think, I think they'll be comfortably numb to to reality.
1: Yeah, I, I think, and also the rails and the ramps to get into Bitcoin, you know, for the mass, you know, out there, I think, you know, a lot of them don't really understand how to do it. As I said, I spoke to a family office who has hundreds of millions of dollars in assets and they didn't know how to do it. If they don't know how to do it, and they're sophisticated investors, and you have someone in, you know, Slovenia who's making a thousand dollars a month, um, you know, who might be experiencing hyperinflation or has experienced hyperinflation, you know, over the last twenty, you know, twenty years. If you know the sophisticated investor doesn't know how to do it and is asking me how to do it, you know, to your point, you know, the average person throughout, you know, the world that is experiencing it, or that the one point six billion that are underbanked in the world. You know, it's again, we have to make, you know, it is a marketing effort. We all have to talk about it. I, I I have breakfast every week in New York with a bunch of folks, you know, whoever wants to come. And I say the price of admission is that you have to go and talk to people who do not currently own Bitcoin, who do not, are not in this ecosystem. You have to talk to them, you have to bring it up. Every single day I buy a cup of coffee or, you know, I buy something and I ask the retailer, again, I don't want to spend my Bitcoin. Um, but I asked a retailer, you know, would you accept Bitcoin if you could? And, you know, time and time again, you know, they're like, you can, I could do that. Um, I had lunch in Dallas, you know, before I met up with her and we, we had lunch and, you know, the, uh, she, the waitress came by and she said, you know, here's your check. And I said, well, you know, is it possible that I can pay in Bitcoin? And she's like, you can do that? Um, it's these awakening moments. We need to awaken people. I know there's always the kind of the memes on Twitter about being woke. Um, I think we need to get away from memes and we actually need to do the hard work. We need to talk to people. We need to talk to people that are outside of our our box. Um, I'm here in San Francisco for a blockchain week. It's great hanging out with people who are in the space already, but it's really important for me to talk to people who are not in the space, who don't currently have Bitcoin, I think if we do that in a concerted effort over the next year or two, I think that will start helping adoption further.
0: Tell me a little bit more about these. I saw you retweeted or tweeted out some of these breakfasts that you have in uh, New York. So, so what what is that all about? You you announce it on Twitter and then people just show up, or what's what's yeah. going on?
1: It, it's basically you know I've one of my friends from a while back used to his family uh, had uh, had a house in uh, Michigan and they were teachers. And this is like in the fifties and sixties. And, you know, they would basically just have what was called like salon style kind of get togethers. They would invite other teachers and musicians and artists and scientists and everyone would just come by and drink some wine, just talk about their respective fields. And I think that's super, super interesting. Um, And so with the breakfasts that I do, it's basically anyone who wants to come by, you can talk about Bitcoin, you can talk about digital assets, you can talk about economics, you can talk about politics, you can talk about art, you can talk about sports, you can, just come and talk about something interesting so we can all learn something that we didn't know about before. You know, it's great to, you know, obviously communicate on Twitter. It's great to talk about, you know, talk, you know, be in chats and Telegram. But the interactions that we have together is so much more important face-to-face. And so I think that is one of the reasons why I decided to do it about four weeks ago. And I have to say, honestly, the things I'm learning, you know, just, you know, the two days ago when I hosted it last – we were talking a lot about China. We were talking a lot about DCEP, their their digital asset. And just, the, you know, you think about kind of levels of thinking. And I think Howard Marks talks about this a lot in terms of second level thinking. Um, you know, there, there are different layers, striations to the way that we think. A lot of us just do layer one where we just know something or we think we know something and that's it. But those that are really highly accomplished in their field, whether it's an investor, whether it's a scientist, whether it's whatever it may be, they think beyond the first layer. They think beyond to the second layer, to the third layer. What are the implications of the implications? And I think one of the things that I enjoy with the breakfast that we're doing is that it makes me and others think about other implications aside from what we're reading about every single day.
0: All right, people, if you're in the New York area, follow him. Have people showed up that you, you don't know who they are uh, beforehand?
1: Most of them, yeah.
0: Also, all, people, because there are New Yorkers definitely watching this show right now. Follow him, check him out. All right, final. you brought it up. at. You said you guys were talking about China. What are your thoughts? Uh, a lot of people were saying because uh, Xi said that uh, they like blockchain now. That's why the, the price pumped. What do you see in the future of cryptocurrency in China? Do you do you actually see the people uh, buying Bitcoin or being stuck in G Coin over there?
1: Right. I think one, you know, it's interesting. I think David Marcus and Zuckerberg actually said this in testimony that if we, the United States, don't really get our ourselves in gear, that another country is going to take the lead. Um, it's interesting, I used to do you know, work within sustainability and some technology, emerging technology. Um, and if you followed what China has done in terms of renewable energy, um, they've really spent considerable amount of capital to become the leaders in that space, and also in AI and robotics. Um, and so there are places and technologies that they are definitely taking a lead on. And I think it, it's, you know, there are people that are concerned from a defensive posturing, um, that it's almost becoming like a space race. Who's going to be the leaders of this new world that's being founded in digital assets and cryptographically powered technology? Um, and I think a lot of people are concerned that China is going to take the lead. I think, you know, in, in, in theory, it's very interesting to see, you know, what we've seen over the last few, last few days. Apparently, um, all mentionings, negative mentionings of, ne- of blockchain have been removed from websites in China. Um, I think at the same time, it is a, a communist regime, uh, it is centrally controlled. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people out there have some concerns that if you have a centrally controlled kind of, you know, regime of their type, um, that them issuing their own digital currency, um, could be both interesting and also concerning. Um, I think there's pros and cons to both sides of those. Um, I think. It's too early for myself and others, you know, especially my colleagues to necessarily you know, make an opinion about that. But I think it is very interesting that we're starting to see sovereign nations, you know, aside from the United States, which apparently you know, is, is still you know, kind of trailing. I think it's interesting to see other sovereign nations take the lead and really see that there is something you know, there there.
0: All right, now one bonus question as we're at the end of the show here. Uh, in terms of uh, countries out there, Eventually, one will make an announcement, or it, it will be figured out that one country out there will be the first one known to have been buying Bitcoin, uh, and that country will end up in a very good position. Uh, do you have any theories on where that country might be, what, what what country that might be, and why they might do it?
1: I don't, but I hope I have some sort of resonance there that you know I didn't know about, that I was a part of that country, you know, that you know somehow you know in my, you know am I Genetics that I'm somehow, you know, disposes, you know, disposed to being a part of that country, so I can obviously take uh, some residency there as well too. All right.
0: Okay. So, tell us uh, where everyone can find you. To say anything you want, anything that anything that was left out here. Sure. The floor is yours. So you can
1: follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty active, and I try to share a lot of my mind share about family offices and other, you know, Bitcoin and other digital assets. Uh, you can find me at David J N A G E. So David J Nage. Um, I have actually become, you know, I've removed a lot of the, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, a lot of people use, uh, kind of other names and things like that. I want people to find me. Um, so you can find me there. Um, I also have the podcast, uh, base layer. You can find that on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or any of the podcasting services that you like. It's called base layer. Uh, we've recorded about a hundred shows thus far, um, and so yeah, those are the two places you can find me.
0: Awesome! Everything will be linked to below, David. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Really unique perspective. I love this uh, family office thing, and I, I hope they all wise up and pour a bunch of money into Bitcoin. This is come on, family offices. Risk 1%. What's 1% of your net worth, dude? It's kind of, seriously, it could end up being 10% in a few days afterwards. I mean, that, that that's thats the logic there. that That's how I would uh, market it to them. But anyway, there you go. check David out. He is linked to below. Everybody, remember, this week at Bitcoin it is every Friday right here on the Bitcoin Meister channel. I do a new show here every single day. Saturday is the Beyond Bitcoin show. Okay. Pound that like button, everyone. Subscribe to the channel. I'm Adam Meister, Bitcoin Meister, this is Meister. Shabbat Shalom. See you tomorrow. Everybody have a good time. Thanks again, David. Bye-bye.